0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Modern Life, an O-Word mini-series looking at how opera, old and new, has spoken to audiences down the ages and continues to today. This time, the work under the spotlight is The Marriage of Figaro, one of the most popular and revered in the repertoire. And I'm not only looking at how and why this blockbuster has endured, but also how it's inspired a whole new opera from WNO, giving Figaro and his friends a new lease on life. Figaro forever, maybe. And we get into a bit of an argument over how far directors can or should go in reworking old favourites for modern times.
1: I mean, the thing about these updates is they work for the, you know, they work for, literally for the moment, I think. They've got a sort, sort of shock value. You know, you can unpick it so quickly, and as I say, it dates so quickly.
0: I suppose he's saying that some great works of art should be preserved in
2: aspic. I think Rupert Christensen is in aspic, actually. <laughs> Absolute poppycock. <laughs>
0: When The Marriage of Figaro opened in Vienna in 1786, it got a lukewarm response. But over the centuries, it's established itself as one of the so-called perfect operas, a work that audiences never seem to tire of, but one which is also a towering artistic achievement. Librettist Lorenzo da Ponte created a social satire in which comedy overlays a deeper emotional story. But it's Mozart's music which is the key, Bringing to life the characters and enabling the drama. Sir David Pountney, former artistic director of WNO.
2: Well, I think it's, you know, there is this very, um, I think a very delightful 18th century aspect, which is the ability to mix comedy with sensitive, psychological, and politically important ideas. So, I mean, there is this whole Commedia dell'arte element in Figaro of these sort of slightly grotesque characters, which are really essentially kind of cartoon characters. Marcellina, Bartolo, Basilio, this this group of people from the Commedia dell'arte origins, if you like, of of the barber, uh, you know, leaven the psychological content which of course is centered really around the figure of the countess Um, you know and I don't think anybody had treated a woman in an unhappy marriage in an opera like that before I mean that you know with that sensitivity and that that intimacy um, and the intimacy between the countess and Susanna um, as sort of women somehow bridging their class divide by their empathy with one another. Um, You know, this is very sensitive stuff. It's very, very uh, touching and and very truthful in a a very humane way. Uh, And, and of course, you know, I think that that's the ability to cross over between that and kind of grotesque humour is a wonderful 18th century state of mind. In the 19th century, everyone gets much too serious and takes themselves too seriously. And we lose this kind of richness of mingling comedy with with, with serious drama, which of course goes back to Shakespeare as, as
0: well. Given Sir David's long and distinguished career, it comes as a surprise to learn he's never directed The Marriage of Figaro, although that's about to change. And his take on it shows how directors like him always look for the contemporary relevance of the old chestnuts.
2: But I'm making my Figaro debut um, next spring in Tel Aviv, of all places. I hope things have calmed down a bit by then. But actually, I mean, this is a sort of Figaro for Israel. Um, and believe it or not, there's a, there's a very substantial wall running through the stage. Um, and the haves are on one side of the wall and the have-nots are on the other side of the wall. So the kind of theme of Figaro, I mean, it's class warfare theme, is set in, in I mean, not directly in, in Israel, but it's set within a context that will be very readily understandable in Israel. So um, I, I may be doing something rather provocative at this point particular juncture in time, but there it just shows you how these pieces keep keep becoming relevant again in ways that might surprise one. You've also written that the big thing about this opera is its
0: portrayal of intimate human relationships, the domestic, but you're also saying you can't or you mustn't ignore the political uh, aspects uh, of class
2: and so forth. Well, obviously, I mean, the, the the piece is inherently very political it was a kind of red hot potato um the play when it was produced um you know just prior to the revolution in fact so um you know it it was very live political piece it's also i think fascinating because i keep saying this and i expect somebody who knows more about this than i do uh to come and challenge me but as far as i can tell, it's the first opera that is set in a domestic context. Um, I don't think anyone had ever set an opera in the house where people lived before, um, and and you know with even references to the geography of the house. You know, if you think of the the famous ding ding dong dong. You know how the, the kind of upstairs downstairs element and where the servants go and all of that. You know, it's a, it it has a there is a domestic reality there. Um, as well as this sort of highly political content.
0: That's the glorious finale of Act Two. The extracts I'm playing from Figaro are from Carlos Kleiber's classic 1959 recording with the Vienna Philharmonic, Those were the days when stagings always faithfully reproduced the original 18th century setting of a chateau, wigs and bodices. But in recent decades, the opera has undergone plenty of modern makeovers at the hands of iconoclastic directors. In a 2006 Amsterdam production, Figaro was set in a car showroom where Carabino was a mechanic and the Countess the boss. In Barry Kosky's Cormier opera production in 2005, everybody suddenly became Jewish in Act Three, and there was Caspar Holton's football Figaro. Former Daily Telegraph opera critic Rupert Christiansen has seen a few Figaros in his time, and all
1: sorts of things have been done with Figaro. I mean, as the Barry Kosky turned it all Jewish because he's Jewish himself. And um, there's a Caspar there's Holton production. Caspar Holton, who used to run the Royal Opera House, did a production in, in Vienna where um, the Count became the manager of a football team or something like that. I mean, it sounded completely bonkers.
0: It was probably the young American director Peter Sellers who opened the door to contemporary settings of Mozart operas. In 1988, he set his Figaro on the 52nd floor of Trump Tower in Manhattan. The Count was a business tycoon, the gardener, a churlish janitor. After what had come before, it was a sensational updating and proved to be highly influential. I mean, if you look at the
1: producers of the 1960s and 70s who um, hit the headlines. They were mostly people like Visconti and Zeffirelli. You know, what made their production sensational was they spent a huge amount of money on fabulous period um, Mm. sets and costumes. um, And... Sellers was, uh, he was, he was, it was a new, a new spirit. I I suppose he was the first sort of young, young, cheeky young American director. He cheeked the operas. Um, He, I remember David Pountney saying something to me, which I think is very, very um, apropos, that, uh, you know, when he grew up, Um, opera was like an ornament on your aunt's uh, mantelpiece, which had to be very, very carefully dusted. And he wanted to smash it, you know, to fling it to the floor and smash it. And there was a time for that.
0: Sellers believe that contemporary references are in fact essential for operas like Figaro to function today. And Sir David Poutney thinks directors have a duty to look for things in old operas that will make them resonate with modern audiences, Figaro being a good example.
2: It was an incredibly contemporary piece, um, you know, set right dead today. Uh, and so that aspect of contemporaneity is is built into the piece and, and that's why actually essentially one should it was never meant to be something set in aspic um, in a sort of period as a period piece uh, it was meant to be something that was talking directly to the audience of the day um, in contrast of course to most operas and this is the important point about you know the, being, being like the first domestic opera. I mean, in general terms, you know, operas of the period addressed mythical issues or courtly issues, or, or you know, they were they were not about the everyday. Um, uh, and so this was a very bold and original step to, to to make this so so actual. And I think it it implies really that that one should directly seek the areas in which that contemporary reference still works and it's not very difficult to find in the the marriage of Figaro
0: But in trying to make them speak to people today do directors risk over-interpreting works like Figaro? Do they try too hard sometimes to reflect the zeitgeist, to make it all relevant? Rupert Christiansen thinks so.
1: Yes, some operas, I think, the ones with more mythic themes, you can do all sorts of things with. But equally, I think there are operas like uh, Le Nozze di Figaro or, or, or Traviata, which hinge on a certain historical moment a a certain set of social circumstances and morality that doesn't obtain um, any longer and if you take the story and the characters out of that period they don't really make
0: any sense anymore to me anyway so for example peter sellers setting marriage of figaro in trump tower you don't think that sort of thing works Well, I don't because I I think it's sort of beside the point. You know, what is the point of the opera? What
1: is the, the, the hub of the drama? And it is the idea of the social relations between the Count and Countess and Figaro and Susanna. And it's at that moment in the seventeen, in the, in the mid eighteenth century, where that's beginning to break down. That that the automatic deference that um, Figaro ought to feel towards the count is no longer there. He's getting stroppy. The count is feeling very, very anxious. I don't think you can transfer that to Trump Tower. I mean, the thing about these updates is they work. For the you know they work for literally for the moment I think they've got a sort sort of shock value. It's fun to see Figaro in the context of a trump Tower and uh, Susanna as a sort of as a black maid and but
0: you know you can unpick it so quickly
1: and as I say it dates so quickly.
0: David speaking to Rupert Christiansen. He believes the further away you move from The Marriage of Figaro's original setting, the more you lose. He compares it with um, a Jane Austen novel. I suppose he's saying some great works of art should be preserved in aspic.
2: I think Rupert Christensen is in aspic, actually. No, I think I think that's absolute poppycock. I don't, I don't see that you lose anything. Um, you don't necessarily lose well, actually, I think you do lose something by treating it as a pure period piece because what happens as a result of that is that you prettify it. And we see that actually very much with, I mean, you reference Jane Austen. I mean, the sort of BBC heritage series um, tend to dole out prettified and sanitized versions of of, of of period pieces, um, whereas actually the people who wrote them were flesh and blood people who had sex and bled and got angry and felt injustice and, and all those things. So so I I don't hold at all with this kind of sanitized version of of our cultural heritage. <laughs>
0: Well, I don't think I'm going to get these two to agree on this point. What is for sure, however, is that The Marriage of Figaro shows no sign of giving up its place as one of the most popular operas ever written. music from WNO's Figaro Gets a Divorce, which premiered in 2016. David Poutney wrote the libretto, and Eleanor Langer the music. Mozart and de Ponte's Marriage of Figaro had been based on a play by Beaumarchais, but the Frenchman had written two others about Figaro and the alma In 1816, Rossini put the first one, the Barber of Seville, to music, leaving the third and final one in the trilogy, La Mère Coupable, to languish for centuries without any operatic attention. But David Poutney thought it was time we heard from Figaro again. As he explains, it fitted with his approach to programming, to combine surefire hits with something we hadn't heard before.
2: I think that putting on an opera is such an elaborate and expensive process. You'd better have something more to say than just, here's another nice opera that people want to go to. I think there should be a kind of, if you like, intellectual artistic discipline about programming something as expensive and elaborate as that to make a wider statement to the, available to the public about, about what opera has to say about these different subjects. So um, when I looked at the, the possibility of, of you know, we, we needed to, we, of course, we also needed to programme pieces that people would buy tickets for. So, uh, actually, I thought we'll do two very popular pieces, The Barber Seville, The Marriage of Figaro, and then there's this actually fascinating play um, called Figaro Gets a Divorce uh, by Horvath, and of course, there's also Beaumarch's um, La, mer. La Mer Coupable. Right. So, there is a, a long history of a third part of the Figaro story, and why don't we create um, a new opera to go alongside these very tr- traditional and successful and brilliant warhorses, um, you know, Barbara Seville* and *The Marriage of Figaro*? Um, it's kind of a no-brainer, really, uh, to add the sequel. And of course, it's 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 lovely that um, actually what, what what we created was something that um, makes a very nice continuity with *The Marriage of Figaro*. Um, yeah, so it, it, was, it was a very nice chance to create a, a third part, a, a nerve-wracking for the composer, I think, to be following on Rossini and Mozart. But actually, Lena did a fabulous job. I think it's a very successful piece. Um, you know, from, from, from what the music that she created, very enjoyable, very understandable and very evocative music.
0: the Almaviva household have become emigres in revolutionary times. Susanna leaves Figaro and has an affair with Carabino, who has become a sleazy nightclub owner. <laughs> so far we've been talking about how old operas can be reworked to suit changing times, but clearly, commissioning a new work gives opera companies a whole different opportunity to appeal to today's audiences. Rupert Christensen again. When it comes to new opera, um, there are no rules. There are no
1: boundaries. I mean, the example that I always give is Nixon in China. But if you try to sell that to... Um, the managing director of, of of WNO as an idea you know i'm going to write this fantastic opera about richard nixon going to china and meeting with chu uh, uh, Lai and chen and he would have thought you were completely mad and sent you out of the door you know it's become nixon in china's become one of the most successful operas of the last 50 years um i've always had this fantasy of writing a an opera about the downfall of Margaret Thatcher, which I think could have made an absolutely brilliant um, three-act opera. Um, but uh, Donizetti would have to write the music for it, and he's not around unfortunately
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a license for this? I applied for one. I know you are me. The setting and themes of the piece, for example, exile and sudden economic dislocation, are ones that audiences can relate to, given what's happening in the world today. But the opera also returns to the more enduring human concerns that interested Beaumarchais, De Ponte and Mozart, relationships under pressure, and the anxieties, trials, and triumphs that emerge. So, both timely and timeless, then. Sir David believes new opera should never start with the idea of being simply relevant.
2: Um, I, I don't think you create new opera in order to keep opera relevant. I think it's more fundamental. I think it is that telling stories through music has an enduring appeal. Um, telling stories has a fundamental appeal. Music has a fundamental appeal. Dance has a fundamental appeal. These are all things that are essential to our lives as human beings, to our cultural expression. And it's no surprise that it goes on uh, working like that. The sensitive portrayal of intimate emotions is something that is, you know, absolutely central to what, we've, what we seek when we go to the cinema or read books or even look at pictures. Uh, you know we're looking for that kind of information about our own emotional selves, and, and we find that reflected in works of art and amplified, and, and that's why we're touched and 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 moved by it. Um, but of course, the political side of it is also maintains its relevance. I mean, um, we don't necessarily have aristocrats and servants anymore, but we definitely have. We definitely have class structures and and we've all seen during this COVID uh, period how a crisis like that actually reveals uh, the ongoing class differences that actually affect the way people suffer from something like a pandemic who gets hit hardest and and surprise surprise it's the people who have least resources and ethnic minorities and all that kind of thing so a class structure is a very, very relevant and powerful uh, reality. So to keep
0: opera current and opera houses full, practitioners look to make the old stuff seem new and to make new material that relies on the good old-fashioned ingredients of a compelling tale human emotions and great music. In the next episode, I'm delving into more new opera, asking the people who make it why they do it and how they hope it will continue to breathe new life into the art form and lure the audiences of the future.